Hi everyone, this is Corina and Angel. Welcome to The Human Show, proudly presented and supported by worldpodcast.com. Here we explore the relationships between people, technology and business. Join us on this journey where we interview anthropologists, other researchers and industry people from all over the world, from India to Kenya, US, Europe, to right back here in New Zealand. Today we talk to Crystal Aberdeen about internet celebrities, their haters, friends and fans, regulations on the internet, and lastly the intersections between social media and traditional media. This is going to be an awesome episode, so stick around and listen to it. Welcome everyone to The Human Show. Today we're talking to Crystal Aberdeen, who is a social cultural anthropologist working in the field of social media and um, Instagram. So how are you today? I'm not too bad. Thanks for having me. It's actually a huge honor to have you here. Quick fact is that I actually um, studied you on my dissertation. I quoted you in that, and I actually think you're, like, really awesome. <laughs> so I'm so, like, happy to talk to you. Um, so I guess, like, our first question has to be, like, how did you find your way into anthropology? How did I find my way into anthropology? Yes. Well, uh, the cheeky answer would be I've always enjoyed observing people and finding patterns in human society. So once I found out there was an actual job description and a proper profession of that, I jumped at it. And of course, this is not the thing I would go around parading on my forehead. So the more professional version of things is I really like to think about how human society and cultures evolve from the ground-up perspective. So instead of looking at rules and law and institutions and seeing how they apply to people, I very much prefer to look at what people are doing in reaction to these things in society because it's at this cusp that you really see all the innovations, all the creativity, also all the secret rebellion and subversiveness that the human race can come up with. That's actually a really great answer right there. Um, another question is, how did you find your way into studying technologies and probably more specifically social media area? Okay, so I specifically study what young people do on the internet and how they create vernacular forms of internet culture. So in anthropology, this generally means how young people make things that make sense to them. And this may fall outside the jurisdiction of, say, what they learn in school, in family, or in normal society. It all started in the mid-2000s when I took interest in a vernacular form of online commerce in Singapore known as block shops. So at this time, around 2005, you have young women who were making ends meet or peddling used clothing on the internet via blog platform. And I found it so creative that they were turning this, at that time, hobbyist endeavor into a business for themselves, just earning pocket money. So over time, since 2005, they developed and across several histories in different parts of the world, today we know these people as social media celebrities or internet celebrities, better known as influencers. Wow, that must be such an interesting field to study. It just seems like a different world almost, that sort of, you know, internet celebrity. So what was it like for you entering that sort of field site? I don't think that the practices of internet celebrities are any that obscure, exotic or erotic, you know. It's actually very common to what we do in daily life. One basic um, strategy or one basic concept is the presentation of yourself. We tend to think of all these people on the internet as being highly skilled in choosing what they want people to see, whether it's posing for pictures on Instagram or coming up with great texts for their blogs. 
But if you think about it, this is actually a basic human endeavor. Uh, me speaking to you, the accent I put on, uh, me going out to the grocery store, the clothes that I put on, the register I use with my students versus with the loved one versus with the person of authority, my composure changes. The way I carry myself changes. So these basic things that young people do on the internet as influencers are merely um, hyperbolic exaggerations or very fine-grained and renowned ways of practicing things that regular humans really do. So nothing too special, just a lot of practice. I guess this would be a side question just because I'm really curious as to how you do this. How do you study something that is online, like through the internet, Right, so is this specifically for the my work on social media celebrities? Yeah, like I'm just wondering, like, how do you do ethnographic or anthropological work on things like Instagram and that when you can't actually, like, spend long time with the people's... Well, technically you can. It really all depends on what kind of research question you're trying to answer. Okay. So if I was, for example, just trying to study the types of content that's popular on, say, YouTube, I could very well do a content analysis and just filter through videos, code them properly with good scientific technique and do that. But the questions I was trying to understand in my projects and my books were different. I was trying to look at how ordinary young people became internet celebrities. And to answer this question, it necessitated that I do um, some digital ethnography, but also some traditional physical field work, spending time with these people in the flesh. So what that meant for me was, um, alongside observing social media states, being active in finding out what's going on on the internet, I literally spent a very long time with several groups of people in the flesh, to see how they produce social media content, how they equip themselves with skills to do this, and how they even try to negotiate the boundaries of the physical and the digital, such as when a follower, a fan, or a hater spots them on the street and they have to carry themselves like a public figure. I mean, yeah, I guess that is another big question right there that you just brought up, is like how these um, new platforms change space and our relationship with people. For sure. You talk about in your articles about a lot about like commercial uses of these people, like how they promote themselves in a way. Like, what would you say to that? So, I think first the caveat that academic publishing takes a really long time to come out. So, okay. things you read today may have been done five years ago through the writing process, the research, and the publishing. So, naturally, when I first studied these young people, the primary interest in young people who were having basic educational skills, opting out of employment and university to make money on the internet was very appealing. So at that point of time, a lot of my areas of research focused on the lucrativeness and the commerce of this business. But I also want to make it clear that aside from earning money from their self-branding, a lot of internet celebrities are also performing a type of public service. This is not to say that they've earned enough money and they are suddenly becoming altruistic. I just want to make clear that having a passion, having a business, and doing public service are not exactly exclusive to each other. So, for example, many of these influencers or social media celebrities who now have a very sizable and comfortable income on social media do take on a lot of pro bono projects. They do take out a lot of projects that now venture out of their self-branding and personal branding so that they can use their platforms to spread different types of public messages. 
So hand in hand, I do feel it's very important, especially for us anthropologists, to highlight that aspect because the journalists and the newspapers are already doing a great job just highlighting the money part of it. Crystal, I was wondering, what type of relationships do these um, do these young people build with the platform itself that they're using? How does that platform fit into their daily lives? Right. I guess there are three parts to this answer. Socially, using in the internet and having social media as part of their lives is changing their forms of relationships and their interactions. For example, having a long-distance relationship, communicating with people halfway around the world, whether or not you see someone in the flesh starts to recede into the background when your primary mode of communication is via text. It doesn't even matter if I'm texting my housemate in the next room or a friend of mine that's 12 hours away. That kind of relationship changes the more versatile you are with social media. As for the culture though, now this has changed a lot with influencers as I've studied them for almost a decade. Previously, you would see a lot of influencers trying very hard to envelope their entire lives with what they were doing. They would focus on producing content, they would carry around body cams and film their day. But now that this has turned into a bona fide business, you see a lot of influencers who are also growing up in their life course, becoming adults, starting families, and they are trying to professionalize this as a work culture to have on times, off times, filming times, non-filming times, times where they're in persona and times where they can also protect their personal lives and have time off for themselves. Institutionally, a lot of these influencers, though, despite being viable, are still quite at the mercy of social media platforms. So it's true that the social media platforms they use are practically free of charge. They may have invested time and money in their skills, but for what it's worth, the internet is relatively accessible to most people around the world. But say tomorrow YouTube decides to shut down, or Instagram decides to start charging people $1 per character in their caption, then all of a sudden, hundreds of thousands of people who are so invested in this business and for whom social media commerce is so much a part of their lives are going to need to find a backup that does not exist. So there is that precarity there and reliance on the platforms themselves as well. Mm. Doesn't that huge amount of followers that they have give them leverage with the platform to to maybe influence some developments or change some developments that they disagree with? Yes and no. A really good example would be sometime last year when YouTube started decreasing in its algorithmic searches content that they deemed was related to queer youth or queer activism. Now, YouTube is specifically a very important space for young queer people because it was where the movement kicked off. Literally hundreds and thousands of young people were finding queer communities in closeted societies through computers, through YouTube. So it is a space where marginalized youth go and find online communities. And for YouTube to have done that without consultation, without any respect for the legacy of these communities, was just a root shock. So there were several very prominent YouTubers who had huge followings, but who also already had an established public profile for being opinionators of queer issues who came out against this. Um, a very popular example would be that of an American YouTuber, Tyler Oakley. So him, together with many other YouTubers and their followers, did send several letters, start several petitions for YouTube to reinstate the algorithm. That is one happy story. That is one good example. In several other instances, though, most recently, like YouTuber Logan Paul, 
with every controversial video he puts out, his fans and his loyal followers still come up and support him and protect him from the haters. But once faced with societal pressure, YouTube ultimately decided to drop him. A lot of his industry partners have also decided to stop their collaborations, and it didn't matter now how many fans he had when the platforms he had to connect with them were removed or truncated in this transaction. So wouldn't that mean that somehow these type of companies, and not just YouTube here, but also Facebook and Google, commercial businesses that actually have an extremely strong social and public role at the same time, would have to be somehow regulated in some way? But regulated by whom? Yeah, Because exactly. Because if you think about it, all these huge enterprises are larger than national governments. Mm. Um, they're international conglomerates. They're even bigger than regional institutions or political organizations. So when we talk about regulation, it sounds nice, it sounds ideal, but then who is to take this responsibility? If we want to talk about cultural and platform norms, or if we want to talk about human rights and politics, yeah. then we have to be very cautious about intersectionality, yes. about diversity, mm. about inclusiveness. And that really sounds like a tall order, yeah. which is one entity to be responsible for all of it. So who do you see regulating them now? Is there any form of regulation that happens, either formal or informal? Um, it depends. Say, some countries do have regulations with age. So the minimum age of consent, what young people can see on social media, and that's filtered out um, just at the level of the state. An example that people always quote would be a place like China or a place like Singapore. But in some other places or some other institutions, you can also get private services to filter out traffic or filter out content you don't want to see. But it's all really contentious because you've got a private commerce-making sector regulating another private commerce-making sector and who's to say who's watching whom. Is there any form of, let's say, social regulation that happens naturally? What do you mean, sorry? Sorry, uh, let me give you an example from a platform that I was using called Periscope. So yeah. on Periscope, who, just for our listeners who don't know what Periscope is, is, um, is a video sharing live platform um, where, where people can upload or do live video of themselves and with an audience that interacts with them at the same time. So on Periscope, there was a, at one point this topic of regulating comments came up and I was watching, observing for the past five years, a very strongly Christian um, community of homemakers in the U.S. And they have a very strong view on what type of language can be used in comments. So um, uh, Periscope introduced this feature where during a live video, if somebody comments something, somebody else can deem that comment inappropriate, and then that comment goes to a public voting to the entire audience that watches that video. And if enough people um, agree that it's inappropriate, then it gets taken off. I shouldn't add right. to that. Isn't it like that um, social community, how like um, on Facebook there's like a community, and like some people would say, like on some sites, they kind of can take control of how, how things are monitored? Yeah, so that's what was kind of like my question. Um, do you see any, any forms of public of censorship that appears from the community itself? Either that being regulated by the organization, like in the case of Periscope, because they introduced that algorithm that allowed you to disagree and then that comment to be taken off, or even if the company doesn't have an algorithm and then the community just builds some forms around the current algorithms of doing that. For sure. I think you see this a lot in forums 
where not just young people but vulnerable communities, say around domestic violence, um, around abuse, have to come up with code among themselves. Um, it's really not different from any subculture who comes up with their own paralanguage or a local variant of a language where you learn to speak in code among each other to evade senses, to evade the public from trying to seep in to read your meaning. All in all, this is just to say that we are now learning double speaking. We are learning how to imbue meaning into different layers. And this is one of the most basic forms of regulation that's easy to apply because if you are long enough in that community, this automatically is tested knowledge for you. It's not something you can go and learn from a book. It's not something you can fake. And so by default, that really signposts your loyalty and your legacy in the group. But um, in the case of the studies that I've done around young people who are internet celebrities, a lot of regulations in recent years has come up against commerce, advertising regulations, what is considered appropriate content. One example is how increasingly there are young children, very young children who are toddlers, who are being put on social media to acquire clicks, to acquire likes, and then their platform becomes monetized either by a parent, a guardian, or an agency. Collectively, though, you have seen a lot of influencers come together to decide whether or not something should be acceptable in the community. So in the community of family influencers, where families showcase their domestic lives, this tacit rule that you should be able to, as a child, you should be able to decline appearing in these videos or this content if you don't want to. And parents who run these channels make it a point to make this very visible. Partly to show that their child is given some agency, partly in response to followers who are commenting on their profile saying things like, they don't look very happy to be there, it's a school night, aren't they tired? So a lot of these new practices or new cultural norms that emerge really come from three sectors. First, from the audiences reacting. Secondly, from the influencers and celebrities themselves wanting to maintain a brand image. And then thirdly, probably out of peer pressure from fellow influencers or under the advice of their managers and their agencies on how they should tone down or play up some things. So in any case, some things happen regularly through the institute, some through the platform. But in the case of social cultural anthropology, where I look at human relationships, it's usually at the intersection of these three groups, influencers, followers, and then their peer groups. Crystal, I have a question around this world of influencers and um, celebrities and online and YouTube. How does it work with the traditional media space? Is there an intersection between them that happens at some point? Is there not? Oh, definitely. I'm so glad you asked this question. It's an entire chapter in my forthcoming book. So I think previously, if we think back on reality TV shows, we used to think of social media celebrities and the mainstream media as a very parasitic relationship. We think about people who appear on Oprah or the Jerry Springer show or Dr. Phil and then claim fame for themselves on television and then using that virality go on to establish social media estates for themselves to become internet celebrities. But we can also think of parasitism in a different way, such as very, very prolific influencers being roped into legacy media to boost ratings. We all know that internationally, television ratings, radio ratings, cinema going, viewership, they've all been on decline. 
But you also see increasingly influencers being roped in to be DJs, to star in cameos in movies, to star in exclusive productions like YouTube Red that's making TV series entirely comprised of internet celebrities to bring back viewership. This is also sort of a parasitic relationship, although influencers do get some publicity. So on balance, I think it's best to think of the entire history of social media and traditional media as a very evolving symbiotic relationship. There are times where either side benefits more, there are times where either side doesn't benefit at all. But because it changes depending on the bargaining power, depending on who the influencer is, depending on the tensions of the popular platforms versus the climate of traditional media in different parts of the world, I wouldn't want to say for sure whether one is dominant over the other, but I would say it's a constant struggle that has benefited both at times. So um, I was thinking while you were talking about this concept of fake news that is going on nowadays, and somehow this concept of fake news speaks to me a lot. How much do we trust the data that we are seeing and from whom we are seeing and how much for us as, as viewers that content has relevance and it's coming from a place of, let's say, truth. And I was wondering in the space of uh, media and social media for, I've, I've been reading some articles that were talking about how you know, one thing around social media is the perception that it's generated by the community, so then it must be something true. It's not something manipulated. It's not something designed to alter reality um, for, you know, different reasons. And traditional media is, is having this decline in perception of being a space where it's no longer the space of the truth. And them working together gives one more validity than it had before. Um, I think this is very tricky for a few reasons, and I'm going to highlight a few emergent strategies that have appeared on social media. The first of this is guerrilla content. Mm. When you are able to commission or get a group of people spread out across the world to all of a sudden seemingly spontaneously speak <laughs> of an event, it comes across as if it's organic if you are blind to these networks. But if you have the labor or the, the background knowledge to piece together the relationship between these people mm. or to piece together a common pattern, these sorts of guerrilla campaigns are really common on social media nowadays. It's very easy to trace them on Twitter as bots. Mm -hmm. Usually it's a few accounts that follow each other. On Twitter, we call them Twitter decks. On Instagram, we call them Instagram pots, where they come up together, share information, amplify the content each other posts, and then it seems as if everyone feels the same way. But what we do not see is all the back-channeling and all the planning. Yeah. The second concept, though, and this is venturing to territory I'm not quite an expert of, but I know has been used a lot in political warfare, is seeding. The idea that you can put out very, very, very small amounts of truth and not have this information be realized. But if you distract masses of people with very outrageously fake news, and in rejecting that, they go and search for these little semi-truths that you have put out and seeded, all of a sudden, these partial truths or these small lies in comparison and relative in relation 
appear more convincing. And such seedings are also really common um, among Russian trolls, and this has been covered by several experts in the last few months. So I wouldn't say that traditional media is more valid. I wouldn't say that social media is definitely organic content. Clearly, in both places, there's a lot of back-channeling happening. But what I do know for sure is that it's very important for us to have a fourth estate. We need to have a media arm that's somehow not motivated by commerce. I don't know if that's even possible today. We need an ombudsman and a watchman that's not motivated by traffic and by ratings. Again, I don't know if that's possible today, but I do know of several initiatives in Southeast Asia where journalists are coming together to volunteer time to make these things happen um, in reaction to news not being translated properly and the rising age of misinformation today. There's another question we kind of ask all our guests, and it kind of like revolves around the ethics of the companies that um, run these platforms and that. And I know you're talking a bit to it um, as we've been talking now, but is there like any advice I guess you would give an upcoming social media platform or company? Wow, this is a tall order. Yeah. <laughs> well, based on experience, I do think it's important for them to acknowledge when practices they are trying to absorb or adopt were initiated by vernacular communities. For example, long before Instagram even had ads, as early as in 2012, um, young teenagers were already making money off posting pictures with sponsored captions. But it was really only in the last two and a half years that Instagram put in new geolocation tags that allow you to signify paid partnerships with brands. It's also only very recently that Instagram is declaring um, all sorts of new ways that you should signpost sponsored content and worse still, embedding advertisements into every user's feed. It may seem like a really great way to modulate this content. Yes, I do agree. But they're also forgetting that all these ideas have vernacularly arisen from young people who first turn a hobbyist endeavor into a commercial platform. So it would be great if future enterprises do point to longevity to recognize who these key players are in their field, to absorb them not just as users or people who are profiting of them, but as initiators of ideas that they can bounce um, feedback from. Would they benefit from hiring maybe like an anthropologist like yourself to get better insight? I know several organizations who already have done this. Um, <laughs> and truth be told, um, several anthropologists who work with very big tech companies that I can't name for reasons um, have predicted the rise and the fall of several trends. Several of this took place in Scandinavia. Some of this took place in China. But I think what companies need to know is anthropologists answer questions they want answered through different methods, through different foci, and always focusing on people on the ground rather than the big picture or the large agenda. So I feel that the combination of both is the best place to see whether or not there are gaps or whether or not there are any mismatches between intended outcomes and the project being implemented. What would you say to those people that say technology is evil and um, these young celebrities are being exploited by their parents to um, for commercial purposes? Right. So to answer your second question first, a lot of mm -hmm. these young people are legal adults, so not sure parents would factor in. I think then we're looking at a very specific group of, say, child influencers. Um, not to say that this is pardonable, 
but I feel like we always talk about technology with an air of exoticism. Mm -hmm. So just to remind everybody, pre-internet, we already had child stars, Mm -hmm. whether it's in the cinema, on television, on print magazines. And there have always been mechanisms in place to ensure that these child stars, as children, have childhoods, have a basic right to education, but also as working parties have access and protection around their legal rights and their money. And we've seen this several times in Hollywood, mm. where teen stars come up and ask to be emancipated from parents or ask to be put under proper management. So I think this shows us that there is precedence for regulating such activity. It's going to be completely um, idealistic for us to say, no young children are allowed to make money <laughs> off the internet because it's only going to get worse. And by worse, I mean it's going to be more extensive, it's going to be more intensive. Mm. So I feel the appropriate reaction would be, okay, so where to from here? What next? Rather than a knee-jerk reaction to go, this is evil and this is bad. Because those are good, positive, moral reactions, but they don't genuinely help with the situation. One other question that I would have would be, to those speakers that we have out there that are contemplating the choice between academia and maybe the applied sector, And I was wondering if you could give them some advice that could help them along that journey of making that choice. Right. So as someone who is still in the print and proper academic industry (laughs) with an academic job, um, and as someone who is mentoring and teaching people who are prospectively want to do PhDs and be academics, I feel like I have the ethical responsibility to say it's difficult. <laughs> there are a lot of people who go through the program, who fight for scholarships, who finish their PhDs, and then end up jobless. And then you end up being super overqualified mm-hmm. for all the jobs out there. That's it, because as a mentor, I would be encouraging to you. There are also a lot of people who do make it, who do find their niche in academia, whether it's teaching or whether it's doing research. But it doesn't have to be exclusive. For example, I've been working full-time as an academic since I finished my PhD. But on the site, I do consulting for several companies, whether it's religious organizations who are wanting to have a young, youth-friendly brand image in social media without trying to stuff ideology down your throat, or whether it's companies coming up to me and saying, hey, look at all this free content we have on social media. We want to build a database and make money off this. Do you think people will freak out? As an anthropologist, what do you think? And I go, aha, this is where I come in. So I think both careers can go hand in hand, Mm. probably depending on where you are situated, maybe even where you are situated, the country and the academic climate and your personal um, preferences. You could go either way. But one thing's for sure, though, I think if you do decide to pursue academia by doing higher um, post-grad study, Always keep your jaws open. Don't be the type of person who's really confident that you'll finish a PhD and be a professor and then retire and then die because those things do not exist anymore. At the same time, don't be too despaired by all the quit lit that academia is a crazy space because there are people who have found communities, who have found like-minded people who enjoy the work we do. And we do find ways to call out uh, insecurity and inequality as we see it to make this environment better for all of us who are living in it. Truth be told, I always tell my students, you know, I can spend two hours teaching you queer theory or feminism. But if I give this knowledge to you and you go out there and you see a homeless person on the street and I get no reaction from you, then I probably really feel as an educator. Like, like all the theory in the world mm. is no use if it doesn't apply or impact the everyday man on the street. 
And that is something I think we constantly to remind academics of. This is something that probably applied academics, applied anthropologists feel more closely in their hearts as well. The, one of the other things that I wanted to ask, you were mentioning briefly earlier on about a book that you're writing. I was wondering if you could speak a bit to what's next for you. What are the new areas or spaces of, of, of research or um, of investigation of writing that you are that you are doing right now? Right. So first books and then larger projects. Mm-hmm. Um, the forthcoming book that's coming out in two or three months um, it's actually geared towards the general public. It's quite an unusual move for an academic to have your first book not be for that solid academic audience. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's a general book about internet celebrity for anybody who wants to understand what this is. It answers really basic questions like, how is a Hollywood star with a Twitter account different from a YouTuber who makes money from videos? Or how is a meme different from uh, an Instagram fashion star. How are these things connected? Should we do them? What does it mean? Is a celebrity in Australia have celebrity automatically in Japan if they use the same platforms? So it's all the really basic um, curiosity questions for the general public. In my follow-up book, the second one that I'm now working on, it's looking specifically at the history of the influencer industry. Now, I know in recent news reports in the last two years, Many people are talking about how this is the rise of influencers, this is the fall of influencers. We love influencers, we (laughs) hate influencers. They are our champions. They are the worst people in the world. And of course, all of this fall behind some facts and some basis and some example of something happening. Mm -hmm. But I want to remind us that there is a history to this, there is a culture to this, there is variation to this. And behind all this is a lot of labor from young people, pre-platforms in the mid-2000s. So that's what this book is about. But beyond looking at internet celebrity, my larger work really looks at young people's internet culture. So for example, I've been looking at how closeted youth are using YouTube to learn Mm. how to be queer, learn how to protect themselves, learn how to keep themselves from self-harm. But also on the darker side, I'm looking into very in-depth subcultural communities on places like Tumblr Mm. to see where youth are going to share things that ordinarily cannot be shared on the internet, where they can find support and communities for things that are too taboo to be spoken about. Also looking at how young people are dealing with grief. This is something that was very close to my heart and it happened because I started looking at people around me who are using mobile technologies to express grief in ways that was very uncommon for an adult. So a school counsellor or a parent or a teacher might think that a young person is being closeted and Mm. struggling But in fact, behind that facade, in their phones, in their pockets, are communities and communities of people who are supporting them and teaching them how to get through dark times in their lives in a language that they understand. And I think that's really one of my biggest motivations to continue the work I do looking at young people and internet culture. It's not all frivolous. A lot of it's very productive. A lot of it's very empowering. You just need to spend the time and effort to understand the language before all the meaning comes through. And your book that is coming up right now, does it uh, is it already available for purchase? It's already available for pre-order yeah. by Admiral Publishing, and it should be ready for mailing out by May or June this year. Oh, that's great. We're going to put the link uh, back in the episodes for our listeners. Check, go check it out. 
Thank you. That's very kind. It does have a very beautiful cover, though. <laughs> so it's actually been delightful speaking to you. I know that I've really felt like I've learned a lot. So I'd like to thank you again. And for our listeners, repeating what Karina said, we will put all the links of her work and her new book in the description. Check them out. And thanks again for being here. Thank you so much for having me. This was really exciting and fun. Thank you for listening, everyone. Follow us on our social media channels and look at the show notes for links to our speaker's work. Join us next time for more interesting conversations.